We good, Rob? Okay. Good morning, all. Good morning. Good to see everyone out this morning here on this Sunday. Uh, today, we're going to look at a scripture from Jeremiah, and uh, the message is titled, uh, Real Life, True Life, Real Life, versus, I forgot my title. <laughs> I'm not good with titles. True Life versus Empty Existence. I, tell you, I don't even like the title messages, so it, <laughs> I forget it already. They ask, we need a title, I give them a title. Okay, it's right. Okay. Uh, let's start by praying. I think we could all use prayer. Father, we come to you, Lord, and it is a privilege that we can call you Father. And Lord, it reminds us that it's only by your grace. Lord, we could never do anything to close that gap between our sin and your holiness. But your son Jesus came and did that for us. And for that, Lord, we are eternally grateful. Lord, we ask now that you would come. I pray you would help me, Lord, to speak only your truth, Lord. And I pray you would help those listening, Lord, to uh, hear and understand. And Lord, I, I pray that this would not only be information about you, Lord, but it would be transformation for us. Lord, that we would take those words and we would apply them, Lord. We would have, with your help, apply them to our heart, Lord, by the Holy Spirit. And we put this time now in your hands and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Funny how words can have such different, the same word can have such different meanings depending on the culture or the time. And a word that's going through my mind this week as I looked at the scripture is the word thirst. What thirst means to us is so different than when Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Or when in Psalm, <clears throat> excuse me, Psalm 63, David says, O Lord, you are my God earnestly I seek you. Then he says, my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. These are people who were in an area that are, it's arid, it's dry, there's deserts. And the idea of thirsting back then many times was, I'm at the point of dying if I don't get water. It's so different for us today. I mean, we bring around bottles of water with us wherever we go. I don't know how we lived 20, 30, 40 years ago without water bottles. I really don't. You think, and it's good for us. But you know, at, if you think about it, 20, 30 years ago, people didn't bring water with them. You know? And we, we have that privilege you know, of, of having water. 
You know, we water our lawns, we wash our cars, we wash our sidewalks. But people in these areas, water is so crucial. In fact, uh, Jeremiah says in Lamentations 5.4, he says, we have to buy the water we drink. He's writing after that Jerusalem had fallen to the Babylonians, but at times, in hard times, the people actually had to buy water to live. I mean, so we, you know, they wouldn't survive if they, if they didn't. Uh, think about the Psalms, uh, other Psalms, if you think like Psalm 42, where it says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet God? This is a person who has been separated. Uh, he's probably in exile, and he's writing. He's away from Jerusalem, and he desires so deeply. It's like a man who is thirsting. It's like a deer who is maybe chased by hunters and is absolutely needs to, to get refreshed, you know, or he'll dehydrate at some point. You know, this is, this is how desperately, when these people say thirst, they want God. When David says, I thirst for you, like this. It's so, so when we talk about water in the Bible, there's a whole different meaning than what, what we, we think of it as. And when we think about being without it and thirsting, it's, it's totally different than ours. Uh, David says in Psalm 36, 9, he says, with you is the fountain of life. Keeping that theme of water. I want, you to, I want you to keep that idea of water and thirsting as we look this morning in Jeremiah and think about the idea that God is that fountain of life, David says, with him. Uh, so if you want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 2, We'll look at the scripture. And what I'm going to do is, even though the scripture I have listed is chapter 2, verse 13, that's the heart of the message. But we'll start at right at the beginning of chapter 2, and I'll just do a quick reading through it and make a few comments, just so you have the context of it. We don't want to just pull a single scripture out without seeing the, the context that it's in. Very important that we do that. And most of you are, are pretty familiar with Jeremiah. He's called the weeping prophet at times. Jeremiah had a, a tough life. He really, he suffered a lot. He did. He, he was a prophet for over 40 years. Sometime around 627 B.C. He began prophesying where the Lord spoke to him and called him. It's the other thing. A prophet, a true prophet of God was called by God. You know, it's a calling. You know, these men in Jeremiah, just like Moses, <laughs> you know, he was reluctant to go. He was, he's, I, I, I can't speak. You know, I'm not, again, he had that same thing like Moses did. And God says, don't say that, Jeremiah. Says, I'll give you the ability. I'll tell you what to say. <laughs> you know, you just, I'll give you the power. You go out there and you say it. And Jeremiah suffered. I mean, at one point, you know, they threw him in a cistern. He could have died in there, a muddy, empty cistern. 
you know, a big hole in the ground to hold water. And poor Jeremiah is down in there. He spent time in prison. One time, uh, Jehoiakim, a king who hated him, toward, toward the uh, last part before uh, the Babylonians came, just before Zedekiah came. And he hated Jeremiah so much, he took his, his writings and he cut them up and threw them in the, the fireplace. You know, this is how Jeremiah was not liked. He had a tough life. He was, but he was a good man. He was a good man. He was a faithful man to God right to the end. And as we start here, uh-oh, that wasn't good. I'm at the stage now where not only I'm falling apart, all my stuff is falling apart. You know, it's total, total deterioration. I just hope I don't start composting, and by the end of the message, there's just a pile of compost here. All right, I'm going to have to read this without my glasses, so I might sound like I'm speaking in tongues this morning, but it's, it's not that, if I, if, if I can't see. All right, <clears throat> Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to me, and it's very important, anytime a prophet writes and he speaks for God, you'll always hear him say, thus saith the Lord, or else he'll speak and then he'll say, thus declares the Lord, or declares God, like that. Very important. He says, the word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. Speaking of when they were wandering for 40 years after Egypt, through a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord. They were sanctified. They were set apart for God's use, he says. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Here, God, they're God's people. They received his blessing and his protection. When those people went to hurt them and harm them and take them over. And while they were through that period of time, God was watching over them. They were, it's like we see that many times in Scripture, the idea of, you know, of being a, like a bird, like an eagle, you know, and being under the wings, the protection of wings like that. And verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, you clan, all you clans of the house of Israel, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? This is sad, I think. I, this is a sad portion. Here's God looking at his people, and he's saying, what did I do? What did I do to you? It's, it's a sad portion of Scripture. He's saying, what did I do to you people? And think, when he first starts, he says, you were like a bride devoted to me. That love of a, of a newlywed bride to a husband. It's very similar. You think you, you go here, and then you think of the book of Revelation in chapter 2, when Jesus tells John, the apostle, to write to seven different churches, seven different letters, and when he writes to Ephesus, he says he begins by complimenting them. 
And he says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. He says, I know you don't tolerate evil men. He basically describes a good church. It sounds like a great church. Outwardly, they look wonderful. But then he says, yet I hold this against you. He says, you have forsaken your first love. It was a church that outwardly had it all together. They were functioning. They were moving. All the machinery was oiled. You know, the Sunday morning services were good. The Wednesday night Bible study was good. The early morning prayer and praise was moving the way it should. The men's ministry, the ladies' ministry in Ephesus. But God says, Jesus says, you've lost your first love. In other words, it wasn't being driven by a love for Christ. It was mechanical. Israel had the same thing after a while, right? In the beginning, they were a a bride devoted to the Lord. Real, true worship. But what happens over time, by the time Jeremiah prophesies for over 14 years, he starts in 627, the fall is in 586. And during that time, for 40 years, Jeremiah preached to a people who had lost their first love, too. They were just going through the motions of worship. You know, they would sacrifice, they would do this. And a and hundred years before him, Isaiah brought this up. And basically, he's saying, your, your sacrifices make me sick. You know, it's sickening what you're doing. Because their heart wasn't in it. We have to be careful of that. As a, as a people and as a church, we have to be careful that this doesn't just become a nice, like a, a, like a business or a corporation or a country club or a fellowship place, you know, where that's all it is. It's about worshiping God. It's about everything being motivated by our heart for God. This is what the people here in Jerusalem lost. And look what happens. He says at the uh, last part of verse 5, he says, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Isn't that interesting? You become what you worship, ultimately. If you worship a false god, you, know, you have no value. And that's what God is saying here. When, you're, when you worship God, the true God, you're worshiping a perfect, absolutely pure, loving holy being and you take on the characteristics we're to become aren't we like christ you know we're slowly sanctification is we're becoming like jesus we want to become like the god we follow you know but if you follow a worthless idol if god is your money think about what does that do to your character most of the times people who all they focus upon is money what happens They can be ruthless. It's all about the buck. The salesman who starts to lie, starts to cheat. As long as I get that sale, that's all that counts. I'm not trying to be hard on salesmen if you're a salesman. It could be in any field. If you want power and you're working up in the company, you start lying, cheating, you start squashing anybody that's in your way because that's your God. And that God is not moral. 
You know, we follow a moral God and he gives us moral values and we're to become like him. But anyway, I want to keep moving here so I get through the scripture. Uh, Verse 6. They did not ask, where is the Lord? Isn't that interesting? (laughs) These are God's people. He says, they didn't ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt? Forgot all about that. And led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land. This is the promised land he brought them when they crossed the Jordan. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. He says, look what they did. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Now, these are the religious leaders. So think about it. If the religious leaders aren't there, he's saying, the priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, false god, following worthless idols. So you see the situation. Even the leaders were so far from God. How can you expect if the leader of a church, say, was an ungodly man and he sets an ungodly example, what is that going to do for the congregation? If the people aren't strong, you know, if there's some true strong Christians, well, they're going to confront him, you know, but otherwise people are going to follow along, you know, and that's what was happening. The leaders didn't have a relationship with God. So how can you expect the people who are following the leaders who are are supposed to follow God? Then he says, therefore, bring charges against, I, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and and observe closely. What he's saying is, if you go to the lands to the west, and you go to the lands of the east, he says, of you. Check it out, he says. And then he says, here, uh, see if there has ever been anything like this. Verse 11. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Isn't that a weird, when you think about that, Israel, Yahweh, was their God. And then they went and changed, and they started following Baal and Asherah and all these false gods. And the Lord calls them on it. He says, "How is anything ever happened like this? Has a nation ever changed its gods? And then he adds, yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory. That's God himself, Yahweh, that word glory, what he's using there like that. My people have exchanged their glory, God, for worthless idols. Now look at these strong words, he says. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror. These are people who have rejected God. And he's saying, be, God says you should be appalled. He says, and shudder with great horror. Do we take seriously when we move away from God sometimes? When we sin? Think about when we sin, what are we doing? We're basically saying, get away from me. 
We're basically saying, I don't want to believe in you right now. I want what I want. We push God aside like he's nothing. The, the sovereign king of the universe. And we just say, okay, this is my time to do what I want now. This, this should grip us. This should make us think. You know, How do we view God? Do we have a high view of God? Do we look at sin and see it as a horror? Are we appalled by sin? Our own sin I'm talking about now. Are we appalled by our own sin? Does it really bother us when we can see that we've sinned? Or is it just, okay, you know, let me go on now. It's, you know, we should be broken and grieved over our sin. Verse 13, and this is the key verse that I want us to really focus on. God says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is one of those portions in Scripture where God takes a very complex subject And he boils it down to two statements here. And he does it, he he just hits it right on the head because he's God. He knows everything. Uh, I was thinking about this, how God does this. Jesus did it in Matthew 22, starting at verse 34. It's when the Pharisees come to him and it says, they try to test him. They're trying, to, they're trying to trip him up, see? And the Pharisee asked him, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus did that same thing that God does here. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He said, that's the first and greatest commandment. And then he said, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all the laws and the prophets. He says, hang on these two commands. Literally, God took, at that time, it was the only the Old Testament. He started with Genesis, Exodus, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. And he goes through, and he's basically saying the whole 39 books, we can take them and go, Right here is the whole issue. You want to know what the greatest commandments are? He says, this is everything right there, he says. Love God, love your neighbor. Uh, Amos does that, too. Uh, uh, Amos, Micah, Micah, Micah 6.5. Micah is is talking to the people in Jerusalem. And they're, they're saying to God, they're saying, you know, what does the Lord want from us? You know, because they were worshiping, but again, their hearts weren't in their worship. It was all mechanical. It's kind of like if you go to church on Sunday and you go and your heart never engages in God. And you can sing, but you're not really engaged. You can listen to the message or just sit here and you're not engaged or we're not engaged and then we leave. And it's like, okay, I went to church, I worship God. And that kind of thing... And the people were asking, and they were almost 
to me, it was ridiculous. They started saying, you know, what does the Lord want from us? Does he want a thousand rams? Does he want thousands of gallons of oil as a sacrifice? And then they get to the point they say, does he want me to sacrifice my firstborn? How ridiculous is that? That's absolutely against God's law. God abhors child sacrifices. And what does Mike, uh, Micah say? He says, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require you? You want to know what God requires of us in the whole Bible, if you want to really boil it down? He says, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. He sums it all up. He says, what does God want from you? These three things. He does it there, and God does it here in Jeremiah. And this, he shows, is what our problem is right here. We forsake God, and we try to dig our own cisterns. We try to find one. And think about this passage. He says, my people, the first thing, notice, Who's it addressed to? Is it addressed to everybody? Is it addressed to those pagans, you know, those unbelievers out there? No. He says, my people have committed two sins. He's directly talking to Israel, and this is directly talking. This applies to us as well. This is not just a passage that, oh, this is for Israel. This is the Old Testament, you know. It's, we're in, the, we're in the, the Testament of grace now. We don't have to worry about this. No. He says, my people have committed two sins. He boils all our sins down. And he says, basically, this is the root of humans, your problem in humanity. This is your humanness, what the deal is, your sinfulness, he says. They've committed two sins. He says, they've forsaken me. Now think about that word, to forsake somebody. They have forsaken me, he says. Think about when a parent or parents forsake their child. Or a husband forsakes his wife. Or a wife forsakes her husband. Or somebody, a friend, just forsakes you. That's a terrible thing. To forsake somebody. It's basically to almost say you don't exist. I'm basically, you know, writing you off. You don't exist anymore to me. And you, you think about that, and God says, you have forsaken me. Think of one who was forsaken for our sake. Jesus is on the cross. All the sins of humanity are transferred upon him. And think about that moment when all the sins were put upon Christ. Too. We just celebrated Good Friday a little over a week ago. Every evil thought, every lie, every time something was stolen, every rape, every abuse, every murder, just every child pornography, everything, every one of those filthy sins was put upon Christ. And at that moment, when the father turns his face from him, he turns his face from Christ because Christ at that point was the most 
disgusting thing that could ever be in the universe. Think of taking all the sins of the world into one person. Christ, the sinless, pure Son of God, became uh, an abomination, shall we say, to God. God couldn't look. He turns away. And what does Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew what it was to be forsaken in the relationship he had with the Father throughout eternity. He knows what forsakenness is. And God says here, you have forsaken me, he says. The spring of living water. Think about a spring. What is a spring usually? It's the source. I remember back in the 70s, I, went, I had a friend in Farmingdale, and I went over to his house, and one day he said to me, he said, Walt, he says, would you mind? And outside, just outside of the town, he says, there was a spring. He's, and I, I was in my 20s. I didn't know anything. I mean, I was close to 70. I don't know what's happened. I don't know if too much has happened since then, but I really didn't know that much about it. He takes me there to this little area and there's like cars all over the place. And there was a little pipe that came up from the ground and water was running out of it. It was a natural spring and people would all go and fill up jugs to get this fresh spring water. And, it was, and he said to me, he says, oh, this water is beautiful. He said, it's so pure and fresh. And God says, you've forsaken me, the spring of living water. A spring you think of is like the fountain, the source, the spring of living water, the source of life, he says. You've forsaken that. We don't go to God for life, is what he's saying. You're not coming to me to find life. Funny that, that f idea of a spring or living water like that. The motto of the Renaissance was, it's always the Latin phrases, ad fontes. Back to the source, it meant, or back to the fount. Back to classical Greek culture and literature and art. That was that, that movement to go back to all the classical Greek period of time. And it's back, ad fontes, to the fount. Go back to the source. God says, you forsake me, you, you act like I don't exist, and here I am, the source of living water. But then he says, and you have dug your own cisterns. Now, if you're familiar, a cistern is a big, deep hole that they would dig in the earth to collect water. Because it was so dry that when they could collect any water, they would have this here. And <clears throat> lots of times they'd they would line it with like a waterproof plaster so it wouldn't just all leak through like this. But think about water that lays in a hole in the ground. It's not too fresh. It's not too clean. It's probably putrid. I mean, if you're thirsty, you're going to drink it or you'll die. And remember, this is a dry area. This is an area where water is scarce and if you have to drink water out of the mud puddle, you're going to do it. Either that or die. And so what's happening here? God is saying, 
you're rejecting life. Basically, you're rejecting the life that I offer you. And you go over, and instead of drinking from clear, pure, fresh water that probably is cool, most of the time spring water is cool as it comes up, you go over to a filthy hole in the ground and you drink that swampy, disgusting, putrid water. What a picture of sin that is, isn't it? When we choose sin, we choose the cesspool rather than life. It just, it, 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 it's mind-boggling. He says, they, but on top of it, he says, they've dug their own cisterns, but they don't even work. They're broken cisterns, he says, that cannot hold water. Isn't the definition of insanity, you know, doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results? When you think about sin, it's kind of insanity, isn't it? Moral insanity, I guess. It's ridiculous. We have the good, life, pure, but what do we do? Sometimes we'd rather grab a ladle and, and scoop out or a bucket out of the filthy water. But you know what? It's interesting. There is no water. He says you build broken cisterns that can't even hold that crummy water that you want. So not only is, it, is the whole premise of it is ridiculous, but it doesn't even work. Now, what I'd like to do is think about this in relation to how it affects us. What does that look like? Well, we know, and basically what we're talking about is idols. You know, whenever we try to replace God with anything, which is absurdity because you can't replace God, you create an idol, right? I want to feel important, you know, so rather than go to God to realize my value is in that he created me, that his son came and actually died for me. That's how valuable we are to God. But rather than that, I'd rather, you know, work on getting the highest position, no matter what I have to do, and get my value and significance from that, instead of realizing that it's God that gives me it or whether it's money or whatever. But I want, to, I want to stay away from that and look at our relationships in the little time we have left to see how that works. What God is saying here is you're basically trying to create these strategies for life without me. And how do we do that in relationships? Well, picture the Garden of Eden. Man is in perfect fellowship with the Father, the Creator, God. And Adam and Eve are in perfect fellowship with each other. There wasn't that male-female tension going on that sometimes takes place, you know, whether it's marriage or in relationships. or Perfect relationship like that. But once they bought the lie of Satan that, hey, God's holding back from you. You can have even better. In fact, you can run your own life. You don't, have to, you don't have to answer to God. You can be the man. You can be the woman yourself. You know, you can be autonomous. But rather, what happens? They do that. 
naturally sin came, and then the world and Satan are under a curse. And the Lord makes it clear, he says, to the woman that she will suffer in, in childbirth and her desire will be for her, her husband. There's always going to be that tension there for that. And it basically is that idea is that you'll always want to usurp your husband's headship. A kind of a punishment for, if you think about it, Eve took that first step and Adam went along with her. He, he didn't do, he should, at the head, he should have said, hold it, honey. We don't eat from this tree. You know, God said we don't, but where was he? She grabbed it. She said, it was pleasing to the eye. It was good to eat. Here, honey. And Adam bit right into it, whatever it was, that fruit. And anyway, so what happens then is she now is as a reminder of that fallenness, says we'll suffer in childbirth, the pain of that, and also your desire will be for your husband. There'll always be that, that you know, she'll in a sense want to usurp. There'll always be that tension there. And what does he say to Adam? He says, Adam, when you work the ground, he says, fruit and vegetables are not just going to come up anymore. <laughs> You're going to have to do it by the sweat of your brow he says, and there's going to be thorns and thistles. It's going to be painful. Now, labor is going to really be painful and hard. Things aren't just going to be easy anymore. But what are those things there for? Is it God's way of saying, all right, I'll get even with you? Or is it a reminder of those things? When we feel the pain, when we have the tension in relationships, is it a reminder for us that what we need is God. We need that fellowship with God again. And, but here's what we do. We have these deep, deep longings, and God created them in us. And I think we'd all agree that everyone has this deep longing for love. I mean, each person has a deep longing to be loved. And each person has a, a deep need to feel like they have some kind of significance or value. There's a purpose. There's a reason why I'm here. But what do we do in our relationships? Instead of going back to God and saying, God is my person that I can know there's unfailing love. And that's what we want most of all. We just don't want love. If you think about it, love sometimes fails, doesn't it? Did you, when you were growing up, as much as even as little children, did we always want our parents to love us perfectly? Well, mine didn't. And unfortunately, with my children, I know at times I failed them. I failed to love them the way they needed to be loved. God never does that. Now think about what he says to Joshua. I will never leave you or forsake you, Joshua. God is faithful. His love never fails. In fact, we sing that, you know, never fails, never gives up on me. You know, we sing that very song because of that. But what do we do? Instead of going to the source of living water, who is God, who has unfailing love, David says in Psalm, uh, the same Psalm, but I said, quoted before, Psalm uh, 36, I think it's, it might be verse 7. He says, how priceless is your unfailing love. And throughout that, 
that the, the scriptures talk about God's unfailing love, that, co- that loyal love, said that loyal love, that covenant love that he has. It's a love that he's, he never fails us. But, so what do we do? Instead of going to the spring of living water and receiving that love, that unfailing love of God, and realizing that God loves me regardless how I feel, I know God loves me and he will never forsake me. We look to others. We look to our husbands. We look to our wives. We look to others to show us that love. And what's the problem? They're as broken as we are. They can't love us unfailingly the way we can't love them unfailingly. And what do we do? We get the shovel out and we start to dig that cistern. And when they don't give us the love we want, what happens? We get angry. We get pouty. We get upset. We put on a boo-boo face to try to get them to to manipulate them. And uh, what happens? It doesn't work. And we get angry at them. You're not giving me what I want. I'm getting angry now. You know, I demand that you love me the way I want. And I'll give you, I'll, I'll try to th- think of an example. Say you're at work. Men, you're at work, and uh, you go into work that day, and the boss looks at you and he says, I just got back to this report. He says, what were you thinking when you wrote this? This is terrible. Says, this is ridiculous. He says, I got guys, you've been here for 15 years. I got guys for one month. They could probably do work better and he throws it at you. Oh, my value is just... Now, if I, if I don't know my values in Christ, my value just went all the way down here. I'm broken now. I'm upset. So I go home. And as I get home, I don't realize that my wife, who works during the day, also had a bad day. The boss and the people she worked with, the customers, were awful. They were abusing her. There was an accident on the way home. It took her an extra half hour to get home. And she walks in, and the little dog, little Mitzi or whatever, or Bootsy or whoever the dog is, one of those little custom dogs today, walks in. You walk home, and Mitzi had a stomach problem. And you find little gifts all over your new carpet. It's not nice, you know. It's ugly. And she cleans that up, and the kids are acting up, and she's furious. And you walk in because your boss put you, I want, I want to be loved. I want to feel like I have some value. My boss just devalued me. And you walk in, and you put on the boo-boo face. You know, you don't want to, I'm not going to say anything. I'll just kind of with the big lip and the, you know, the downcast. And she looks at you, and you're waiting to hear, Oh, honey, what's wrong? You look sad. And she says, What's your problem? You know, whew. Now, either you stop and you say, Obviously, my wife needs me to listen and to love her. Or you think, How dare she speak to me? Does she know who she speaks? Does she know who I am? You know, like this. And, you go, and so what happens? Hey, what are you yelling at me for? You should have had my day. She says, oh, your day, how? Well, let me tell you about my day. And then when I came home and this and that. And what are we doing? We're digging cisterns. We're trying to get from each other what only God can give us. And you know what? It's sinful. 
And I'll tell you why. What, is the, what did Jesus say the second greatest commandment is? Like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. What are we doing? We're not loving our neighbor. We're not loving our wife. We're not loving our heart. Instead of loving one another, we're trying to draw from them. And when they don't give us what we want, we're angry and we demand it. That's sinful. We should be thinking, how can I minister to my partner? Or how can I minister to this person? Or realize, yeah, the boss really degraded me. But is that what my value is based on? Think about when you rate your value on how people treat you. It's a roller coaster. You know, one day you could walk in and the boss says, Walt, that was brilliant. What you did yesterday, you're the best, baby. I love you. You know, you're the man, Walt. And two days later, again, you know, he says, what are you doing? What's up here? Are you stupid? Come on. So now I went from being the man, you know, being down in the pit. But, and yeah, that's the, I'm not trying to downplay it. That hurts. We have feelings and we have, but what do we do with that? Do we now use it on other people? Do we say, I'm going to get, I'm going to get my value from somebody else? He didn't treat me right, but I'll make sure somebody else, you know, treats me right. And if they don't, we get angry again. We're supposed to love one another. We're not supposed to be drawing from us. But we're more like magnets, you know, trying to suck and draw people and get what we want. And that's wrong. And what does God say? He says, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. God offers us life. He offers us hope. We have love. We have our value in Christ. And what do we do? We dig our own cisterns. And as God said, they can't hold water. Sooner or later, if you depend on somebody for unfailing love, the water's going to drain out and you're going to feel unloved. If you depend on somebody for your value, sooner or later, they're going to devalue you. And what's going to happen? The water runs out. And again, you're empty. You know, we need to... We need to look at things like this and say, am I drawing from Christ? Am I really, really drawing life, the life that God wants me to have? Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or have it more abundantly. Do we go to the source? Do we really draw upon Christ or are we... Digging, get the shovels out. Every day we get the shovels out and we, we try to find fulfillment in something apart from God. It's foolishness. It really is. It's sinful. It is. We miss it. We miss it. And I'm going to stop here. I have a lot more, but I want to stop. I don't want it to go any further. Uh, Jesus says over and over, I've... It was John 7.37, I believe. It, said, it was when they were having the Feast of Tabernacles on the last day, the greatest day of the feast. It says that Jesus stood up at that feast. It says, and it, which is unusual because rabbis, when they wanted to get their point across, what did they do? They sat and people would stand. But it says Jesus stood up 
And in a loud voice, what did he cry? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Wow. You know, why do we miss that? With the woman at the well. You know all that. You all know that story from Psalm. You know, I'm preaching to the choir here, I guess. Those, you pretty much know it. You know, the woman's looking at physical water, and Jesus is saying, hey, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. I'd give you living water, he says. Water, he says, that's going to spring up to eternal life. You know, that's the Holy Spirit working in us. When we are drawing from Christ, God wants us to draw from him. That's the funny part. We're trying to draw from each other. They can't do it. And we get angry and we get sinful and bad attitudes. Instead of drawing, Jesus says, draw from me. Come on, take the water, drink. And what's, what's wrong with us? What is wrong with us sometimes? We miss it, you know? And I, I'm, I'm saying this because I see it in my own life. That's why I'm sharing it with you. You know, we're, we, we miss it. We're, we have that offer of free. Isaiah 55 says, you know, come, eat, and drink. Without cost. It's wonderful. Uh, so what do we do with this? You know, I hope, if anything... I could just get you to think today a little bit. Think about your relationship to God and your relationship to those around you. And again, that goes back to what Jesus said. The greatest command is love God and love your neighbors yourself. Run to God. Run to Christ. Draw from Him. When you're struggling, we've we got to stop depending on each other. Not that we shouldn't. We're here for one another. Christians are here for one another to encourage one another, to comfort the scriptures say we're to comfort one another, you know, mourn with those who mourn, you know, rejoice with those who rejoice. Yes. But there comes a point where we're adults and we need to get alone with God sometimes and go to God. We can't I boy, I, I I've said this before, but my mentor when I was a, an assistant pastor, he was great because he always had a way of very subtly uh, pointing me in the right direction, or he'd just say little things to me. And like once I told him, I, w I remember it was a Sunday morning and I was reading, uh, I believe it was, uh, I forget what, what I was reading, uh, but it was the seven, Matthew uh, 23, Matthew 23, where Jesus, you know, gives the seven woes to the Pharisees. And there's one where he says, you know, blind Pharisees. He says, you know, you hypocrites. He says, you love to wear the robes and be where everybody is and the people call you rabbi. And I was reading that scripture this mor that morning in my own time and I, it convicted me. I said, I like when people say pastor. And I went, I'm just like the Pharisees. I actually liked when people were saying, oh, Pastor Walter, you know, this or this. And I was like, wow. And I told Jerry, we would always, we had our open, which I always appreciate. I said, Jerry, I got to tell you, I was reading the scriptures more. And boy, if I, didn't, if I didn't see myself, where I like when people come and greet me and say that. And anyway, we talked a little bit. But at the end of the service, what did he do? As, he's getting, as he was getting ready to pray, he said, listen, bro. He said, I got to go in the back. He said, would you go out and greet the people this morning? <laughs> he purposely threw me back in that to get me to think about that and deal with it. You know? And uh, the point I was trying to make with that, and I, I lost my train of thought because I wanted to uh, 
share about something else that was relating to the message, actually, not just you know, sharing a story, but I, I forgot. So we'll have to leave it at that. It couldn't have been that important. Uh, but anyway, what I'd like us to do is just think about these scriptures. Think about how you're doing. Again, if it's just information, if you just hear, and you hear it, and you don't apply it, you know, we're called, we want transformation, not information. You know, the information should cause transformation. But if, remember, you can know everything in the world, but if you don't apply it, what good is it? You can know how to build a house, but if you never do anything, what good is it? You know, we can know the scriptures up and down. The Pharisees knew them up and down. It didn't help them know Jesus. Jesus said that. He said, these are the scriptures that testify about me. He said, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. They knew everything in the scriptures, but they didn't know Jesus. They missed something along the way. Anyway, uh, think about your relationships, and uh, let's pray. Father, I pray that we would come to you often as the source, Lord. You are the source of life, that living water. Lord, forgive us for trying to draw from others, for digging cisterns that are broken that can't refresh us, Lord, because they need you as much as we need you. Lord, Help us, I pray, to be tied to you and to drink from you often, Lord. Give us a thirst, and may that thirst be quenched by you, Lord, and not looking for others to quench it. And then, Lord, help us to reach out and love others and to encourage them, Lord, instead of trying to draw from them continually, Lord. Thank you for loving us the way you do, Lord. And uh, Lord, please bless the remainder of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.